In the name of God, creator, redeemer, and giver of life. Amen. Please be seated. Beautiful to see you all here. Good morning. Last Saturday, I woke up to the sounds of talk radio reporting on the usual calamities of the day, you know, the, the theme and variations of cas- catastrophe that we're all dancing to these days. The Delta virus, the vaccine resistors, the changing climate, racial disparities, et cetera, et cetera. And by the time I made it to the kitchen, I realized that I had just cursed my radio three times already. As I waited for my coffee to brew, it occurred to me just how angry I was. And a question rose up in me that was just kind of like a prayer. What do I do with this anger? I wonder if you've been asking that lately. The author to the letter, uh, to the, the, the author of the letter to the Ephesians, who was probably not Paul, but rather someone writing a few years after his death, tells us exactly what to do with our anger. Be angry, but do not sin, he says, which seems like fair advice, uh, even if I'm not exactly sure what it means. And then he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not let the sun go down on your anger A lot of us probably got that advice from a parent or a pastor before we got married. How many? Yeah. It's probably the most common advice given to young married couples. Former President Jimmy Carter credits this advice for his 75 years of marriage to Rosalind. He said, at the end of the day, we try to become reconciled and overcome all the differences that arose during the day. That's very lovely. But my problem is I can't figure out how to be reconciled with the anti-vaxxers, right? I haven't found a way to make peace with the social media empires that are raking in obscene piles of money by pushing harebrained conspiracy theories. I haven't found a way to forgive certain politicians for the lies and the hatred that they sow. And I could coat on so easily. I bet some of you could too. What do we do with this anger? Well, I guess I'm not alone because an opinion piece in the New York Times yesterday, which always seems like um, the work of the Holy Spirit when, when you're working on something that you think might show up in a sermon, and then there, the very topic is in the New York Times this time with the headline, an op-ed piece that says, what to do with our COVID rage? What to do with our COVID rage? Well, I mean, rage is a kind of a strong term. I mean, I'm, I'm from Minnesota. I mean, <laughs> I don't know, rage, but if I'm not feeling rage, it's only because I'm not a childcare worker who has no choice but to interact with parents who refuse to mask up or get vaccinated. It's only because I'm not a waitress about to be evicted from my apartment because the pandemic killed my job. 
It's only because I don't have a loved one dying in an ICU bed because she made the mistake of believing her friends on Facebook. If I were any one of them, you betcha, I would be feeling not just anger, but rage. And maybe some of you are. Which goes to a central point of this woman, Sarah Smarsh, is the writer of this piece in the Times. She says, um, you know, if we're going to be responsible adults with our anger, or, um, or to put it in more biblical terms, if we are going to be angry but not sin, um, we need to begin by taking into account the truth of our own class and our own privilege, those of us who have it, and the truth of the systemic issues that we're all caught up in. For example, it turns out, according to Sarah Marsh, among those who are not vaccinated, the biggest thing that they all have in common is that they don't have health insurance. Well, you might say, well, why is that a problem, right? After all, vaccinations are free. You don't have to have health insurance to get vaccinated. But it turns out, not surprisingly, it's a little more complicated than that. Turns out that a lot of uninsured people do not trust doctors and hospitals. Turns out that they have had not very good experiences with hospitals because that's where you go to get so far in debt you lose your house. That's where they tell you you can't have surgery that will save your life because you don't have the right insurance. That's where you go uh, for many millions of Americans. Uh, where you go when you are near death and they do give you your life-saving surgery, they, they get rid of you, they transfer you out to your home as soon as possible before it's fully safe because you don't have the right insurance for, for proper post-operative care. And as a chaplain in hospitals, I have seen that happen too many times to count. For many millions of Americans, the healthcare industry is not a benign institution with their well-being in mind. Hospitals are places where life and death depends entirely on how much money you have in the bank and on your class and privilege. So of course, a large percentage of unvaccinated people um, have no health insurance. They are the working poor. They're the ones on the short end of just about every stick they get. They're people of color. They're service workers. They're juggling two or three jobs along with their children. They're not evil and stupid. They're angry and scared, just like me, except much worse. It's what we do when we're angry and we're scared. We, we create simplified stories with good guys and bad guys so we can cast our anxiety and fear onto other people. Our newspapers and social media tell us these stories because these are the stories that we will pay good money for. These are the stories that, in the language of Ephesians, give the devil a place to land. 
By the way, this is what we do not only when we're angry and scared, it's also what we do when we're grieving, right? That's why we lash out at our doctor when he tells us we have cancer. We need to shoot the messenger. We need it to, we need it to be someone else's fault. Anger is one of the stages of grief. So as we ask, what do we do with this anger? We really have to ask, what are we grieving? I'm grieving so much, I can't even begin to count the losses. I'm grieving a world that once felt stable. I'm grieving a future that once felt knowable. I'm grieving a world where Walter Cronkite could say, and that's the way it is, and everyone believed him. Be angry, but do not sin, Ephesians says. Be angry because righteous anger is of God. God is angry at injustice, and we should be too. It's okay to be angry at incompetence and mendacity and lying and corruption. We can use that anger to change the world, and we should. But do not sin, he says. In Ephesians, we start to sin when we turn our backs on the truth, and the truth begins with us. The truth is that we support a system that produces the very pain that we condemn. It's like when I'm stuck in traffic and I'm angry at all the people in their cars in front of me, blocking my way. Meanwhile, I very conveniently forget that I'm also one of those people in a car blocking somebody else's way, right? We're all in this mess together. That's the truth. As we let go of our unrelenting need to justify ourselves, as we take a look at why exactly our anger is so important to us, as we begin to actually reckon with our grief and our loss, finally, as we actually witness the suffering of actual, real human beings rather than the paper doll characters we've created for our own emotional convenience, finally, something extraordinary begins to happen with our anger. It begins to be transformed into love. Suddenly, these words from Ephesians start to hit home. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up, as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit, he says. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. The author of Ephesians makes it sound easy, you know, as if it's just something we just do. Oh, put away your anger. But it's not so easy. It's not something you just do. It takes work, and it takes radical 
trust in God. And it takes prayer because it has to do with not grieving the Holy Spirit, by which he means not selling the Holy Spirit short. Giving the Holy Spirit a chance to work on us. Because it turns out the Holy Spirit is always right here. Always inviting us into deeper truth. Always inviting our love. Even loving our enemies. I had a chance to dig into some of the weird old early, early Christian documents that talk about this thing grieving the Holy Spirit. And it's, it has to do with being so busy, so caught up in yourself, so determined to meet your own needs and get your own interests met, that you're not paying attention to the Holy Spirit who is living and breathing right in that moment. And that is when the transformation takes place. As we begin again and again with every breath to recognize the living Christ in our midst, the Christ who lived and died to show us what it means to love, even as he also showed us how to be angry and not sin. May it be so for us as we become imitators of Christ, a lifelong process of transformation, and we're all in it together. Amen.